Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Mordecai Ogada to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Mordecai is a carnivore ecologist and conservation writer who's been involved in conservation policy and practice for the last 18 years in Kenya and other parts of Africa, mainly focusing on human-wildlife conflict mitigation, community-based conservation, wildlife policy, and wetlands ecology. Mordecai is currently the executive director of Conservation Solutions Africa a natural resource management consultancy. Thank you very much for joining me today, Mordecai, on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Mordecai, can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and what you're working on at the moment? What are some of your projects? Yeah, I'm, 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 my name is Mordecai Ogada, as I had said. I'm, I'm a Kenyan wildlife biologist, my back, I say that because that's my background and my training is in is in wildlife ecology, mainly on carnivores and and uh, wetland ecosystems, and all all that all my studying was in was in Kenya up to my PhD level. Um, I've worked for about twenty years now in the conservation civil society, meaning NGOs and and uh, and. Uh, community-based organizations as well. So I've not I've I've been in conservation, but outside the state, um, the state authority or the state system. Um, my 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 background professionally, I've been uh, working on ways of reducing human wildlife conflict, mainly with carnivores, wild carnivores and livestock in central Kenya, which which has always been a big problem, loss of livestock to wild carnivores because a lot of carnivores live outside um, the parks and protected areas we have in this country. Other than that, I've also been involved in um, development of uh, resource management plans, sort of plans that help communities sustainably use wetlands, springs, rivers, uh, forests, etc., without damaging the resource, so sort of using it sustainably. I've also been involved in teaching. I've I've taught uh, I've taught to conservation conservation biology and conservation policy, various places: uh, University of Nairobi, Colorado State University, Michigan State, as well. Yeah, very good, very good, very very important work. And um, I, I I'd like to get a, a, a perspective on on what you see happening or your, your views. And I know you've got some strong views on on uh, the way conservation operates in Kenya and and in other countries as well. But just before we go on, on to that, I'm just wondering uh, what's on your mind right now, or in the case many environmental issues right now, interlocked environmental uh, crises. We've, we've got the COVID issue. Is there anything in particular that at this juncture that really concerns you that's on your mind? 
th- I think what what worries me most, um, ironically, because because I've I, I've worked in conservation many years, and one of our main things was not having enough resources to do what we needed to do. What worries me today is how much money has come into conservation. That it's there's so much money that's coming that's become it's become a business. It's become commercialized, neoliberal, and the aims of natural resource natural resource conservation has actually become peripheral and the main aim has been to keep the money flowing and um, with money comes political muscle um, so it's conservation is becoming is becoming like a, an avatar for so many other different things geopolitics and economics that have nothing to do with resource conservation so the real problems the carbon emissions the loss of species, um, the unsustainable use of resources continue unabated. It's just that there's there's so much money flying around that helps cover it up and make it look good and greenwash it, etc. Right, right. Very, very, uh, very interesting. How, how do you see that on the ground? Um, what kinds of things, you know, show, reveal just how much money is coming in? Are there some some uh, ways in which you, you this is most noticeable? Yes, um, one of the most noticeable ones is, is especially for someone in the coming from the tropics like I do, is the huge swaths of um, landscapes and seascapes as well that are being turned into quote-unquote protected areas and for quote-unquote carbon sequestration, which is then used to quote-unquote mitigate environmental damage in Europe, um, in the Americas, et cetera, et cetera. It's a complete fallacy that um, someone can damage environment in Europe and pay money to someone to come and plant trees in Kenya to some, and that somehow makes that okay. There's this term they're now using, it's become the hot new term is net zero. Everybody's talking about aiming for net zero. Net zero is a fallacy as is carbon neutral. Even ourselves as individuals, we are not carbon neutral. I'm producing carbon dioxide even as I'm speaking right now to you. So, so th- those are myths and fallacies that are are put in place just to drive the the gravy train, but are not changing um, are not changing the net emissions, the net loss of biodiversity. And instead, yeah, instead they're actually causing a lot of breaches of human rights, etc. Right, and I'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit in more detail about this, the work, and the, the particularly on the human rights front and so forth. I mean, have you any sense of the scale of this? I mean, you talked about protected areas and so forth. How 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 much land has traditionally gone to uh, protected areas in Kenya? Is that growing substantially? Yeah, yes, it's 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 um it's grown it's growing substantially um in the state. The state system, as in national parks, government-owned protected areas, um, those come to around nine percent of Kenya's, uh, no, eight percent of Kenya's land mass. Um, in addition to that, the various NGOs have been creating what they call conservancies, and this has this has put on another another nearly similar amount or about 11 percent under 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 protected areas but the the problem is actually the whole concept of protected areas protected areas is is a, a concept that's rooted in in violence and 
and eviction and disenfranchisement. All the beautiful national parks, and they are beautiful, that we have all over the world today are created by violence and eviction of people. And we shouldn't forget that. So, Right. When, when you say that, I, I mean, uh, to what extent uh, in your experience have you seen that? Because, you know, I, I've read, and is it Survival International, some of the research they've mm-hmm. done and some of the research you've done, which is clearly happening. But do you think it's pervasive? Is that your experience that it's, it's not, uh, these are not uh, isolated cases, but it's actually are you suggesting at the heart of the project somehow a by byproduct that's 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 at the heart of uh, that that's that, that's neglected and, and overlooked the the ongoing violence is i i'd i'd say it's it's not pervasive all all through the, the, i'm talking about the ongoing violence because there, there are parts that are not that are are peaceful today and are not uh, don't have any attendant violence to their management but their creation was a result of violence. There were people in those places before they became parks, even the ones that are peaceful today. So we, we, I think the philosophy behind protected areas has to be looked at afresh. And I'm not saying that we should do away with the protected areas we have. We will keep those because they're part of the heritage of the various countries where they exist. But we should look at the philosophy of protected areas. If you want to create more as the UN and various global organizations are recommending now, we have to ask ourselves who they are protected from, where the people who currently live in those places and use those areas are going to go, and where they're going to be created. Because to protect biodiversity, I've always said we are not going to, if we are going to increase it to 30% of land mass, we are not going to increase the size of Regent's Park because we won't gain much biodiversity by that. We won't change, increase the size of Central Park in Manhattan. It will be an increase in Savo or Samburu National Park in Kenya, where I live, and other parts of the tropics. And so we end up, we in the tropics end up bearing responsibilities for decisions that are made, uh, frankly, quite far away from where we are and our livelihoods. Yes, yes. Yeah. And at the heart of this, I think, and you've written about this, is an idea of an area where there are no humans. So you take the humans out of the area. This this essential idea itself is problematic in your view. Yeah, preci- precisely. The, the, the idea or concept of, uh, quote unquote, pristine wilderness without people is a complete myth. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a Western myth probably something from the days of Roosevelt and John Muir in the, in the United States. They're the ones who envisioned that. And landscapes, wherever you go in the world, are shaped by humans. And th- it, this is a compliment to those humans because some of them have such a light footprint that it's not easily detectable to the, the unskilled or un, unschooled eye. That's why, that's why tourists, hunters, and exploiters have, have come into this place and said and marveled at this wilderness without people. It's a wilderness. It's, it's not a wilderness. It's a, it's a likely and sustainably used um, habitat or resource. And we, especially those, by we, I mean those of us who are technically um, studied in the area of ecology, et cetera, must step up to the plate and be honest in, in, uh, in accepting that humans are part of landscape 
you, you touched on an important question and one which is, I think, getting more attention but uh, need, need, needs to be talked about is the assumptions, I guess, about the impact Indigenous people have on the landscape yes. and uh, track record of Indigenous peoples as stewards themselves. Yes. Um, I, th- I think, I think um, the, 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 the main fault lies with, with us by, by us, I mean us, uh, quote unquote, conservationists, the skilled ones, the, those of us who are who are uh, have studied the science and all that, because the conservation science is one branch of science that I can tell you is patently dishonest. Um, it it uh, it neglects reality. One of the ne- realities it neglects is the presence of people like science. Um, paleontology tells us that East African plains. Kenya, actually, my country, is the cradle of mankind. And mankind, in one form or the other, has been here for 1.2 million years. Yet in 2021, you find scientists coming again to tell you that human beings are a problem or a blight on the the landscape. So, So science has to be honest with itself, and we have to apply our skills in developing sustainable ways of using landscapes. Humans have always used landscapes, have always used natural resources. The key is finding sustainable and more resilient ways of using these natural resources. So actually the problem now, and a stark example of this is that you find people with PhDs in 2021 um, seeing a conservation problem somewhere and coming up with uh, the solution they come up with or the idea they come up with is that you should fence it. Fencing is primitive and violent. It was probably cutting edge back when they built the Great Wall of China. But today, any scientist worth his salt should not come up with fencing as a solution. But they're doing it all the time, and donors are funding these fences and are funding guns and patrols and boots on the ground to maintain these fences. So conservation, I think, needs to wake up and behave the way business, literature, and all other areas of human endeavor are behaving, i.e. waking up and modernizing. We are still very, very primitive as a practice. That's very interesting. You talked about this 30-30. Yeah, yeah, 30 by 30. Can you just talk about that a little bit? What do you think is driving this? And it seems to have tremendous momentum. Yes, the 30 by 30 is is this this move to to increase the recommended protected areas to 30% of the land mass. Um, currently, the recommendation is fourteen percent. Um, it's 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 a ludicrous plan, in my opinion, and it's it's got a lot of momentum. First of all, it's driven by two things. One is the one it's it's sort of philosophical underpinning is Edward Wilson's um, half Earth theory. I think the Edward Wilson's half Earth theory yes. is basically saying that half the Earth should be kept should be kept pristine, quote-unquote, to, to save biodiversity. And, and so they, they're now getting, they moved down to 30%, and the aim to do is to do it by 2030. I think this is driven by the money I talked about at the beginning of our conversation. There is so much money to be made by funding of this, um, jobs that people will have managing this, the fights that war is profitable and this will produce wars. So there's a lot of money to be made if 
if it's ever to be implemented. But I don't think it's possible just because it's it's so ridiculous and it will collapse under its own its own cracks and faults. Because there are some details that, like very basically, is every country going to have to put 30% of its land? You have to have 30% of Kenya, 30% of Uganda, 30% of the UK. Is that going to happen or is it going to be global, as in Kenya will be made to put 70% while maybe um, Monaco will not have to do anything or the Vatican will not have to do anything? And so... Such details have not been worked out, but the gist of it all is that it's overly concentrated. It's focused on the global South, um, Africa, tropical Africa, tropical Asia, um, tropical South America. And this, this is the area where people will feel the brunt of the violence that, needs, that, that is required to secure this much, to remove people from this much land, to disenfranchise that many people. I think all the people concerned need to get move away move away a bit from the quote unquote science and look at history look at the humanities look at the politics look at culture and and the the anthropology in these places where we want to implement this thing because that that's the big failing that's a big failing and right now conservation as we pursue these ludicrous aims and this corporate money ready behind it. Ironically, money from the people who are, and corporations who are actually destroying the globe and unsustainably using resources. They're the ones who fund these things because the, the, these schemes greenwash the pollution that they're putting out. If you pollute and then you finance a 20,000 hectare or 200,000 hectare protected area in Kenya, for example, it, that will be used to greenwash your reputation and the emissions you are putting out in the in Europe or in the Americas or in Asia or whatever. And that's what's be, that's what's happening. And brokers in the middle here are making money, palm of a fist, from from um, selling this myth. So we need to step back, get back to reality, and look at what's actually there. Countries and cultures are different. Some countries like. If we look strictly at population and land mass, a country like Australia could probably afford to make even 80% of their land mass protected areas. There are that few people in that bigger country. Kenya cannot even afford the 15 or so percent we have now. What are the implications of that? Yeah. You say that so, so 15%, and this is growing presumably quite fast. Yeah, yes, the, the, the implication will be loss of livelihoods, there'll be rivers where people cannot fetch water. I mean, in the, just to put it in perspective for your global audience, um, in many parts of Europe and the Americas, people drink water. They have no idea where the water they drink comes from or, or, or where the vegetables they eat comes from. Um, if you come to rural Kenya and, and 80% of our country or our population are rural, we take water from the nearby lake, river, or spring. We, we get our wood fuel from the nearby forest. We grow our food right outside there. We graze our animals on the nearby grassland. So the moment you cut us off from that, it is, it's almost, I, it might be too harsh a word, but, but for lack of a better term, it's like a genocide because literally that the person has lost his resilience 
at a go. He has to move away from that place. And, and in, that is the effect that a lot of conservationists actually seem to be looking for. Get people out, create the pristine myth we were talking about earlier, and sell that as carbon credits, sell that as tourism destination, sell that as hunting ground, sell that as oil exploration area, because there's no people. What it, yes. Is, is there a, a process, a, a governance process? Are there established protocols in Kenya, how this operates? If this has been going on for some time and it's expanding, the, the ways in which local people are, are a, a, a included in the dialogue, indigenous people are given uh, a say and, and uh, you know, and more. Because um, I, I have read about, you know, guards, military guards uh, being financed, coming in to, to you know, quite violently uh, take the land away to to uh, deal with disruption and, and, and things like that. But presumably the Kenyan government um, uh, has, has some, some systems and some, some procedures. Y- yes, yes, yes and yes and no. And, and um this is how conservation seems to exist in some strange ethical lacuna, which, which I, which one of the things I'm studying as a person now, and I can't still understand because if you came to Kenya and you wanted um, to establish maybe a wheat farm or a factory or, or any other land use, you, there are regulations, very stiff regulations, legal, environmental, et cetera, that you have to go through rightly. So, but if you come and you say you want to establish a conservation area, somehow conservation interests just get a free pass. And I'm, I'm yet to understand why that is, why that is the case. Um, the regulations, and if you go on the website or even visit any of these places, they will tell you, yes, we have an agreement and um, it's written down and all this, but no, th- those are, those are uh, patently dishonest because speaking about Kenya, all these agreements, first of all, are very secret, although through, through my various ways, I managed to see a few of them. They are all in English and sort of the, you know, legalese type English that even someone like myself has to, has to really sit down and take time to understand. And they are purportedly drawn up between these, these English speaking people and communities on the ground, many who do not even speak Swahili, forget English, many who are even illiterate. So you, I'm yet to, and I'm, I stand to be corrected if, if, if anyone knows of this, there is no single agreement in existence in Kenya that is even written in Kiswahili, much less Maasai or Samburu or any local language that the subjects of that agreement understand. And Yes, yeah. you, you, you you mentioned the, the Maasai. Uh, what what has been their experience as a tribe, as a people in Kenya, with respect to the uh, conservation? Um, the Maasai people, I would say that they're they're our greatest guardians of of um, of wildlife and and wild ecosystems amongst the, the ethnic groups we have in Kenya. The, and I would not say just the Maasai, but pastoralist people, Maasai, Samburu, Borana, and, and those others. Because if you look at our wildlife habitats, it's in areas where that are occupied by these people. And it's because they have such a light footprint on the land 
the way they use the land is very compatible with wildlife, with the existence of wildlife. And, and uh, I think that is, that's what's magical about these rangelands in Kenya, that coexistence. Elephants on their own are not special. An elephant is an elephant, whether you're in Kenya or in Botswana or South Africa or wherever you might be. But the, the systems the systems and the ha- shared habitats are what's as special, whether you're in Amboseli or Masai Mara or Samburu or Laikipia in Northern Kenya. But you find NGOs coming in and now starting to create conservancies in this area, areas where that cannot be grazed. Um, water sources that people cannot use in dry seasons, um, areas areas through which they cannot pass on their way to markets or on their way to look for the pastures. And this, this, this is actually deliberate disruption of a system that is thousands of years old. The only, not thousands, hundreds of thousands of years old. And the only reason there's wildlife there is because this system works. And to come and disrupt it in 2020 or 2021 is the height of dishonesty. And this is all backed by quote unquote science and scientists. And this and it's it's also backed by serious amounts of um, donor funding, both from public and from private and governmental sources. And this is this is where the great um, fraud, I think, is. And because it's it's basically a recipe for colonialism. It's just that the colonialism that happened in the 19th century was was honest. They didn't pretend to love us. They didn't pretend to be doing it for us. They they came to do it for them. But now they they couch it in all sorts of nice sounding things. It's a very stark view, mm-hmm. indeed. Um, now, what is the Kenyan experience with biodiversity, and what are some of the environmental challenges in Kenya itself? I'm interested, we see, uh, maybe you can talk also about this concept of a uh, biodiversity offset. You mentioned carbon offsets at the beginning, and clearly there's a discussion to be had there. There is some sense in, in, in offsetting uh, carbon emissions that can't be reduced in some cases and so forth. But the whole idea of a biodiversity offset seems to be paradoxical in the extreme because the idea of a bio, biodiversity is it tends to be in a linked ecological system so the idea that you could you know step into another ecological system another part of the world and offset the biodiversity law seems a bit strange yes yes and, and that's a very valid that's a very valid question because i i've i've been in this field about 20 years and and i've struggled even with at my level of education, I've struggled to understand what just what it means, the, the, what this biodiversity um, offset or or or, or credits are, are about, and it's it's actually it's a commercial scheme because it does not the the problem facing us is loss of biodiversity or environmental damage or emissions. That is the problem facing the world. The exchange of money does not reduce emissions. It's just exchange of money. In fact, in fact, um, it's money that moves without any goods or services being given in return. In legal terms, that's actually man- money laundering. But we've, we, the, the whole concept of biodiversity offsets, it's a very clever thing because it's, it's, 
devilishly difficult to understand. But eventually, I think I understand it now. And it's just, it's, 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 it's just a fallacy. And like what you mentioned in your question, it, it creates the, 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 the platform that implies there are some people who cannot reduce their emissions. So others must be responsible for, for mitigating it. It's almost like saying there's some guy who cannot stop stealing. So there's some, we need to find someone else to go to jail on his behalf because we don't want to force him to stop stealing. Yet the problem actually is theft. Well, that points to the tremendous importance of the regulatory, the regulatory environment. Correct. Kenya's own biodiversity track record and environmental situation. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yes. I think I think as a as a nation, our our track record on term in terms of in terms of um, biodiversity conservation, I think it's I think it's it's something to be proud of. Just um, looking at the looking at the 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 strong policies that we have maintained, as in as in policy against hunting, for example, the ban on hunting. Um, we we have stood in Africa. Kenya has stood basically alone on this for um, four decades now. I'm talking of since about the end of the 70s. Um, so we've stood alone on this for a long time, and our law enforcement, our law enforcement is very strong. So wildlife crime prevention is very strong, and that, that's that's played a, a great role in in um, in keeping our in keeping our wildlife uh, intact. Because right now the situation in Kenya is, if someone gave me an ivory task right now, I'd throw it in the nearest ditch and walk away. I I I wouldn't be able to go and sell it or 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 take it anywhere without considerable risk and all that. So we we have done well on the part of environmental stewardship. Um, I think I I'd say our 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 regulations need better enforcement, and I'm talking about um, I'm talking about waste disposal, uh, maintaining ground cover, and and. Uh, emissions etc because because we we need we need to be very we need to be a lot stronger about it because we even have agreements some some strange agreements like many tropical countries have with with other countries that they can bring we can actually import toxic wastes from other countries and dump them in Kenya right now as we speak there is a dump of radioactive waste right by the gate of mount kenya national park it's about this is about 20 kilometers from where I live here. There's a toxic waste dump in Marsabit in northern Kenya. So we can't have we can't have strong laws for ourselves yet. Our government still finds it uh, finds its way to 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 import and and maybe get paid to dump other people's waste that's not produced here. So those are a, a few problems we have. But uh, by and large, I think I think Kenya has done well to maintain what we have with the population we have and with the relatively small landmass that we have, i.e. with our population density, we've done very well. Yes, yes. There's a lot of attention now, uh, understandably, around COP26. COP15, the uh, Conference of the Parties on on Biodiversity. How did that go? Um, It's... it's 
sadly, it's it's become a lot of horse trading. Um, it's become a lot of horse trading as as has uh, CITES as well. So we, we end up, instead of talking about the issues, we are talking about political positions. Support me on this, I support you on that. And biodiversity doesn't work like that. And I think this is what's important for the general public to, to understand that, that um, let's say, um, Kenya, cannot, Kenya cannot seek let's say we are talking about elephant conservation, the opinion of a country that doesn't have elephants should not be relevant to that, should not be relevant to the position of the elephant range states on how to manage their elephant populations. So, well, well you, you mentioned elephants. There's been a, a scheme, I don't know what the status of it is, it was Carrie Johnston and the Aspinall yeah, Foundation yes. to bring some elephants from the UK to Kenya? Yes, 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 yes. I, I, I heard of that some time back. And that's that's a that's a ludicrous idea. And and I said so then because okay, the first wrong done was to take elephants away from Kenya and take them to the UK. But now, now to 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 bring them back, it's in my opinion, this was just some romantic feel-good story. It was to make someone sort of self it's a self-actualization type thing to a feel-good story that certainly it would give great footage it would have national geographic channel type um, tv programs done about it there'd be huge amounts of money spent huge carbon footprint stress on the animals stress on people and at the end of the day kenya has thirty-five thousand elephants we don't need 13 more from the uk it's absolutely absurd you couldn't make it up really it's crazy yeah Nature Africa, that's something that you've written about recently. And maybe if we just focus on that as one particular project, uh, set of projects. And can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, about Nature Africa and, and, and give us some of your views on it? Nature Africa, um, the, first of all, this, the scale of it is colossal, huge. Do, do... This is a project. This is a multilateral interna- international yeah, project. Yeah, yeah. It's the scale of it geographically, financially, everything is huge. And Nature Africa is this scheme put to, put together by by the EU to to finance nature conservation across landscapes and seascapes in Africa. Um, if it as the, the 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 graphic presentation of it is basically the entire east coast of Africa from Somalia going down to Mozambique or I think Northern South Africa. Um, there's a lot of landscapes even within inland Africa that will be covered by it. And it's, it, it's in, terms, in terms of scale, it's, it's probably the area they're talking about is, is probably larger than Western Europe. So it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge geographical area, huge number of people, huge number of species, huge amount of money. And the, I think the plan is a a, a network of yes, a net, network of protected areas, protected landscapes and seascapes, and by by protected landscapes and seascapes, it will mean landscapes within within which um, people cannot use cannot use resources the way they did before the project came, or cannot use resources without reference to whoever is running the project. Um, Now, the only reason why 
such such a, a project on such a scale would come up is because of the funding instruments. A few years ago, because obviously the bio, concerns for biodiversity, governments put in tax breaks for people who finance conservation. They put in all sorts of incentives. And this, for lack of a better term, has worked too well. And again, I'm back to that thing I said initially. There's so much money that you need to create things like this just to absorb it. And at the end of the day, because of all the money there is, there will be disenfranchisement. Because basically, you know, it's it's capitalism, it's capitalism rules and capital rules. So we are facing a situation where there are a lot of people, a lot of societies that are under grave threat. You won't, you won't be able to fish the way you would fish off the coast once that thing off the East African coast uh, takes off. You won't be able to graze animals the way you do once the, the landscape, landscape level things take off. And and it's they're all it's this control of water by multinationals who are also funding this thing and and it's a huge capitalist um, machine that's coming in to basically annex natural resources, landscapes, and seascapes in the global south. And to me, it's it's a frightening thing personally. To me, it's a frightening thing. Right. I, the, the, yes, the, the EU has had some kudos for its, some of its uh, projects and biodiversity and its concern. And, and I, I go, of course, this is presented as a people-led project. Is that not possible, that they that this could be designed in such a way that, that, that it would be, uh, you know, uh, allow local peoples to, 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 to operate more or less as normal within, within you know, at, at a sustainable level and, and, and maybe provide also significant, you know, uh, uh, environmental, positive environmental impacts? I think, I think... Um... Uh, where, where we where we are failing as as a as a society or or as conservation is we fail to recognize that conservation has a threshold. There's a scale. You can do what, what you just described is is the ideal. You can do the ideal up to a certain scale, and by by scale I mean there's a certain geographical size of area where you can do that and still be fair. There's a certain level, there's a certain amount of money that you can put into a given area and do good work. And so there's there's levels. At the level they're planning, it is impossible. It will, will, not not me, it will go bad. It will. So the the, the, the scale of it. And and presumably as well, um, you you would need to see strong evidence that they uh, you know that, that they have plans for governance processes that are that embed and include you know all of the stakeholders and the indigenous people living in the, these landscapes rather than you know just talking about it that you'd you'd want to see some, some you know examples some laid out clear protocols and so forth. Um, now, I know the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights, the Environment, t- talked about uh, this idea of um, 
what you, you, you as the heart of your work, which is, I guess, a kind of rights-based approach to conservation rather than maybe the, the more fortress style, I guess, which, 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 which it's been called as well, which are these protected areas, as you say. So what, what, what are some good examples of this rights-based approach? Or what, what does that look like? Okay, okay. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's basically, at a, as a, at a basic level, um, there's no prescription for it now because nobody, nobody's doing it basically. Um, but at a basic level, it is having reference to structures, existing structures, whether social structures, etc., on the ground. Um, the ideal, if I could say the holy grail, is to do it at a high resolution that you're down to, you're down to, to respecting and working with, with um, the local clan or, or community. Um, but that's that's very difficult. It's very complicated, and 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 certainly c- certainly as much as we'd want to do it, it's not it's not easy. But at the very least, in my opinion, if 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 I could sort of bottom irreducible minimum, we have to operate at national level, and like the Nature Africa, if you look at that thing, it does not even respect the existence of countries. These plans are going roughshod across international borders, and I'm 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 shocked at the arrogance of it. Actually, the very bare minimum, yeah, the very very bare minimum should be at country level. But um, if you you ask about rights rights based conservation, um, okay, respect for local structures, and then things like agreements, consent. There's a lot of talk about um, prior informed consent in in conservation agreements. Consent must be continuous. It cannot be once. It's like it's like the way in, in our basic relationships, even like marriage, consent to stay together is continuous. You you consent that every day, and the day that consent ends, people split up. So so we have to put in place mechanisms that have constant review in them. And yes, it's complicated, but that is what we must do. The most biggest mistake on the part of conservation is we try to do primitive things and in, in, uh, to manage inherently complex systems. Well, I, I, this is something I'd be interested in getting your perspective. There's tremendous momentum rhetoric, but also uh, companies that are committing to net zero, that uh, all this... Uh, tremendous move yes. toward uh, reducing in some sense the, 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 their footprint. And a lot of this is, is, is going to be done by carbon offsets. The former uh, head of the Bank of England says it's going to be a billion dollars a year. Uh, business is going to be a vast industry uh, uh, of carbon offsets and, and presumably various kinds of biodiversity offsets too. Tremendous momentum. And, and understandably, a lot of activists at the moment are calling out the urgency of the situation and there's pressure building. Do you find that that's having an impact on the ground in Kenya? Are people, uh, you know, you seeing this money coming in in a more urgent way or people taking action, this sense we've got to do it now and, and, and this momentum building? Uh, yes, the, the, the momentum is okay. As, as, as a conservationist, I, I, I can't say it's a bad, the momentum is a good thing. 
the momentum is a good. I, I guess what I'm drawing attention to, sorry, I guess what I was drawing attention to as well is that these are complex environments yes. which are interconnected. And if you think you can create change within a short time frame, that might be problematic. Yes, yes. First, first of all, the, 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 the systems and environments that exist, the societies, the ecosystems uh, that exist have developed what they are today in some cases over a million years, some cases a hundred thousand years. So for someone to think they want to change and put in something new within the next five years is 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 the height. It's it's almost it's so arrogant. It's almost childish, and the and that's the problem with the momentum that's building because the momentum that's building is building from a ignorant people. I mean pop stars, Hollywood actors, etc. They don't know anything. And secondly, it's building from people in Europe who are very far from where these systems are. So the momentum is good, but it's like, you know, zeal without knowledge is a runaway horse. And this is a runaway horse. It's all zeal. There's no knowledge. And, and everyone's jumping onto this bandwagon. And again, the, the, like you said, the former Bank of England, Ed is talking of a billion dollars, etc. Everyone's talking about money. And capitalism is the reason we are in this predicament. For us to imagine that capitalism can save our environment is 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 is, is, uh, is cognitive dissonance completely. And and I think we must we must manage the momentum. We must bring in the required voices, and I mean voices from the global south, not not. No, and not not people from the global south necessarily, because the, the conservationists are very good at trotting out Mordecai from whatever community in Kenya and putting him on stage to say something. But the voice, it's about what the person says and what the voice is. So we must, yeah, we must we must get serious about that. Get the actors off the stage. This is not Hollywood. And, and that's really, really important. We are getting enamored with actors and bankers like the one you are quoting, where where was the scientist? Is there growing violence? Are environmental activists at risk in Kenya? I, I read recently there was uh, was a Johanna Stutchbury, but you, you, global witness and organizations like that document the growing and shocking murder of environmental activists around the world. How is that in Kenya? In Kenya, it's it's. Um... There's not so much violence, you know, like like you are in danger because of your because of your environmental activism. There's there's the 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 violence I can say is is in is in uh, the impunity, the way things are done. You can protest against something and it just gets done, and 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 the, the and actually the 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 greatest danger or 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 the, or threat to an environmentalist in Kenya is actually state authorities that are in charge of developing infrastructure and these kind of things. There are also, they're also private developers who are building stuff. And Jonas Stachbury's um, murder was pretty shocking in the way it occurred, but to this day, no one really knows if it, if it was about her, her activism or what it was about, because to be honest with you, activists cannot stop um bad projects in Kenya. We've tried and it's it's it, the late Wangari Mathai stopped some some projects, but right now the impunity is really bad and and I I don't think they'd need to murder her in order to 
to do what they wanted to do to build what they wanted to build if that if that that's what it was so we still don't know what that that shocking murder was about but in kenya yeah the, the danger is that you talk you say things and no one cares i think that's the greatest danger cup 26 what impact does that have on the questions we've been talking about today mordecai i think i think cop 26 will will accelerate the the dangers that i had spoken about will will uh, will be a pl- platform to celebrate the billions of dollars to celebrate the the tens of thousands of square kilometers under quote unquote protection it will celebrate the actors who who the hollywood actors who speak who, who pay lip service to these things and the capitalists who 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 had conservation organizations and and I'm I on the ground in terms of the environment biodiversity um net emissions greenhouse gases cop 26 I do not expect any significant impact it will, the, the noise will go up there'll be a lot of talk there'll be a lot of visibility but the net emissions if someone's measuring chemical composition of the air if someone was doing that or temperaturized no i don't think cop26 will change that well today as we speak uh, the kenyan president kenyatta is with biden in the white yes. house in america um he's been linked to offshore money offshore investments through the pandora papers mm. i was surprised to see just the level of us uh, shall we say interest in kenya um in terms of aid but also military something like half a billion dollars in 2020 um is that something that's on your radar the degree to which money coming from the american america or the american military yeah, yes yes the the um and and i'm speaking from the the perspective of conservation um my my observations in the last 10 years or, or so is that there's been a lot of there's been a lot of um eastern sort of chinese money coming into infrastructure development in kenya a, a lot of it and by the same token there's been a lot copious amounts of western us european uh, money coming into conservation and it seems to me that the concept money into conservation has been i'm not sure deliberately or not but has been sort of acting like a bulwark against the chinese inroads through infrastructure because they they're building a road here to oh, this is a conservation area put up fences before the road comes up and this kind of thing so conservation might be we might be just in the middle of some kind of proxy war and losing access to our resources for for reasons that are beyond um beyond our purview and uh, and i think this this is a, this is a this is a problem because the the amount of us money for example that has come into conservation has put up structures and uh, created armies of guards etc that are financially unsustainable so if one day policy changes or or some president is elected who doesn't think this is important suddenly we will have an edifice of trained armed people who don't have resources to be paid and it's anybody's guess where that can go so so i think the the worst thing is that we are conservation has now become financially unsustainable 
the way it's being practiced in Kenya is financially unsustainable, completely dependent on copious amounts of donor funding and with no sort of end game sustainability plan in place. Do, are you confident that there are there is change in the air? Can you talk about the Marseille Manifesto or People's Manifesto for the Future of Conservation? We talked about Kenya a lot. We talked about uh, Nature Africa. But is there increased awareness of the kinds of issues you're talking about? Does the Marseille Manifesto, is this part of something that's that you think is important and will have impact? Um, I'm optimistic that there's change. But the reason why I'm optimistic is, is because the um, sort of access to information, uh, more young people talking about Kenya, more young, more young people have smartphones, you know, tablets, smart devices that they help them access information online. So they know what's going on. And I'm talking about people who are not in conservation, just every Tom, Dick and Harry. They know what's going on and they're now guarding against it and they're questioning these agreements. That's where the change will, will uh, that I'm optimistic uh, about will come from. Um, as far as the Marseille Accord and these international bodies, they will, they, they're already, they're already, um, they're already pretty relevant to what goes on on the ground. And I don't think if anything saves our biodiversity, it will not be these global bodies or global meetings. Our biodiversity, I think, will survive in spite of these things, because these are just mobilizing. They're just mobilizing forces of destabilization. And there is no stable ecosystem that exists without a stable human society. That's the fallacy of, of, of these meetings and global bodies. They don't see people. They don't see humans. They think Africa is animals. And that's why they can destabilize a society in the name of in the name of saving a wild animal under the fallacy that wildlife can exist in a stable place without stable human societies. And, and, and eventually they learn and, and um, because a lot of people are getting wise to them. What they're doing right now is not conservation. It's, it's um, our wildlife will survive in spite of it, not because of it. Right. Interdependence. Yes, exactly. What's next for you, Mordecai? Um, right, right now, again, it's 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 very much on getting the 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 human rights front and center, getting anthropology. Because I mean, I've come very late into this. I've been a scientist for two decades, and I'm just getting now to to get to grips with the human dimension and and the importance of human societies in this. And and uh, I think my, my main ambition now is to make sure it comes in much earlier so that people getting into conservation now are plugged into the human part much earlier in their, much earlier in their learning or in their careers. Because I personally kept talking about human dimension that I remember being told by my supervisors, you are studying animal ecology, you're not studying culture, you're not studying humanities. And it's a fallacy to assume that these are separate things because in reality, they, they don't exist in isolation. So a lot of work to be done on the human rights sphere, get justice in place, get this message out there. And 
yeah, it's I'm glad that 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 people like you and your podcast are now are now covering these kind of things. And some of these international organizations have started to respond, although very slowly, like all big animals, they can change direction only very slowly. But I've seen some I, I, I've seen some some promising signs. Well, I wish you the very best of success with your ongoing work. And thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights and the great work you've been doing and the important uh, future of conservation in Kenya and globally indeed. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesises Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.